Hello and welcome to the Level Playing Field podcast, a podcast that focuses on disability and attending live sport. My name is Liam Bird and I am the fan liaison officer at Level Playing Field, the sporting advisory and campaigning charity that advocates for better access and inclusion for all disabled people who want to attend live sport in England and Wales. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. This is a monthly podcast and in each episode we focus on subject matters regarding disability and sport. And this month we are focusing on non-disabled supporters. To be exact, how non-disabled supporters trusts can support better access and inclusion for disabled fans and how disability is viewed by clubs and non-disabled supporters. We have two fantastic guests in this month's podcast. I speak to the supporters trust of my hometown club, Nottingham Forest, but before that... I sat down with a man with over 20 years of fan engagement experience. His name is Kevin Rye. Kevin is the founder and creator of the website Fan Insight and the podcast of the same name. He is also a fan engagement consultant. So I sat down and spoke to Kevin about how disability is viewed from the perception of non-disabled supporters, as well as his 20 years history in fan engagement. In front of me, in the way that it is now down the internet, I've got Kevin Rye. How are you, Kevin? I'm very well, thank you very much. Good, good, good. Uh, before we start, let's talk a little football. I like to do that, since we are essentially a sports podcast. So, uh, am I right in saying you're an AFC Wimbledon supporter? I am. I am indeed. Yeah, it's my um, my one and only love, really, when it comes to football. To be quite honest with you, I'm not really interested in international football or Champions League football. Or it's always just been Wimbledon for me, really. Since, since certainly since I was about sort of 12, 13. I think AFC Wimbledon fans are, are kind of like that fan that is beloved because of what happened to you <laughs> historically. Does that is it kind of like starting to get to a point now where it's like we don't need your pity. We're actually doing okay now. No, no, I think I think I think all of us appreciate and some fans will be sick of it, but I think we all appreciate being admired for what we did. The only thing that ever slightly annoys me is when people talk about it being a fairy tale. It's not a bloody fairy tale. It's hard work. What we did was hard work. It didn't happen by accident. What we like is to be recognised for having worked at it rather than, you know, somehow the fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. It's hard work. Usually is. Well, I mean, so that's kind of whereabouts your beginning, I suppose, in in the football world in working of it started. Because from my understanding was you were part of the, the group that kind of started to create the rebirth of AFC Wimbledon, what used to be formerly Wimbledon. And then from there, you then started working for Sports Direct, the organisation that merged in to essentially become Football Supporters Federation, which is the SFF, FSA now. Uh, Yep. And then as head of policy and PR, where you worked with over 200 football clubs and member organisations in England and Europe, supporting fans with engagement strategies before becoming a fan engagement consultant in 2015 and then setting up Fan Insight, which is a, a website that I would say everyone go read. And you've also got a podcast as well, which I'm more than happy to plug. Uh, but I suppose the first question really is what? What is a fan engagement consultant? I mean, it basically means I'm an expert in fan engagement who tries to bring my knowledge to to assist the work that clubs do. But to be to be completely honest with you, the thing that I worked out very quickly was that it was very difficult to get clubs a to work out precisely where where strategy fitted within a football club when it came to fan engagement, and b actually to spend the money on it. Because, you know, clubs are focused on 
the playing side totally understandably. Look, in the end, that's the only reason I got involved in football was because I was a fan of watching a game. That's what it was about. It became complicated by my love affair with my club and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, you've read out what I've done. And that's really when I went, do you know what? I'm not going to try and persuade people of the merits of good fan engagement because they uh, are on the on the current basis that it's done or understood because it's not the way that it needs to be understood. And that's when I, I sat back and went, I need to re- I need to basically establish what I mean by this and what we mean by this. And that's when I set up Fan Insights and created the Fan Engagement Index. And I, and, and actually now the second edition, the, uh, 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 the first one was kind of in its own way disruptive. It was, a, it was a sort of disruptor, if you want to call it that, a positive disruptor. It's absolutely positive disruptor. It's always been about posit- being positive about it and being progressive. And, uh, and now I'm actually sending out the data sets to clubs to say, look, have you got any comments on what I've collected? Because it's all publicly available data. Now I'm trying to say to clubs, look, I am saying to clubs, look, I want to work with you to do this better and to improve it and to actually also to recognise what you do well. I suppose I am a consult, a fan engagement consultant, but, but really what I'm about is trying to um, understand, measure and share best practice in fan engagement and help to improve what people do but really it you know fan engagement is just a title fan engagement consultant is just a title it's one of those things so when when you've kind of spoke to supporters and you spoke to clubs about how how that engagement comes about where where does disability sit like is it a conversation that is spoken about highly or is it something that is a bit lower down the run of objectives it's a good question um i've always been very clear that when it comes to fan engagement i don't think when it comes to say for example let's call it sort of specific groups within the fact the ordinary fan base if you look at the fan base as a whole and then you start sort of grouping people into various groups and um because of their needs or because of their you know their place uh, or not in society and the way that they you know i mean it can it can be disability it can be um ethnicity it can be a uh, uh, gender you know the groups that are all not the the, the central clump of you know white mate, male match goers, which is what you know most football fans are. That's never been my area of expertise, and never been the area that I've worked in. However, it is absolutely an area that, when it comes to engagement, if you don't work at it, then you you're missing out a whole section of the fan base. And I might add, you're missing out a potential set of potential fans. So, if nothing else. For good commercial sense, you should always be considering what goes on and how you relate to all of those groups. Do you think it's difficult to kind of work in disability, whereabouts with LGBTQ or with race, they're kind of single base issues, and that's about education and inclusion. Whereabouts disability, when you use the term disability, it's such a wide umbrella term because, as you've spoken about, you've got people with invisible disabilities, and then you've got wheelchair users, and then you've got ambulant disabled, and you've got neurodiverse disability. And do you think that's kind of like an issue... To, to kind of focus on disability because it is so complex. I think everyone's experience is complex because it's an individual experience. And we put people into groups to help us to understand broad un- broad groups. And look, you know, the idea that someone, yeah, the idea that, that, that there's a group called disabled and they're all roughly the same is nonsense because, you know, I've got, I've got a friend who's got cerebral palsy. He walks fairly well and falls over and breaks things every so often. That's not the same as someone who's autistic. You know, those two forms of 
disability are very, very different. And that's no different from someone who's been brought up in, it, it was a podcast with David Harewood, and him talking about his experience growing up in Small Heath in Birmingham versus someone's experience, you know, my mate at school, my, my mate at school perhaps that I grew up with whose parents were from the West Indies and his experience would have been different or someone who's come, you know, whose who's roots are from China, you know, we, and, and then it's the same with, with gender and sexuality. All, all I've ever understood it to be about is understanding other people's experience or attempting to. And if you don't get it quite right, don't need to think that you've done something terribly wrong. Just try to understand and, and ask. Be curious about it. And then what you find is you, you, you start to look beyond it. Not that you ignore it. You start to look beyond that. And what you are is curious about them as people. And that that then when that comes to engagement and all those sorts of things, well, it's much easier to engage with someone that you're interested in and you're curious you know whose life experience you're curious about that's humans at their best for me what what you're saying there is 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 talking it's having those open conversations not worrying that you might upset someone for using the wrong terminology do you think that's the, the way that we need to move forward is is kind of get past the idea that you might offend and just ask questions and then educate and learn and move forward some of it i mean you know, there are going to be times where you say things that just aren't appropriate because it's not the word you use anymore. I think we all know that. If you know, if if you think about disability, there are there there are words that I'm in my late forties. There are words that were used at school, you know, as an insult. And I'm not going to start going through what they are. Everyone knows what they are when it came to disability, and and you can't use them anymore. So if you accidentally use that, that's not a good thing, and you have to apologise for it. And you and uh, causing offence, you know, a lot of this is about always about intent. It's always did I did I mean to try to upset you by using that word? A lot of this isn't about look if we all love each other, peace and love, then everything's fine because it, it doesn't work that way. We've all got our own busy lives, and we can't all be on on top of what language to use and what position to take on issues all the time behoves everyone i think to recognize that the least we can do is just listen hear people out and where people don't understand help them and just be prepared to talk to talk and to listen that's been the great privilege in my life so far is being able to outside of football before i came into football and then all the, the fantastic things i did sometimes tragic sometimes quite comical sometimes incredible but the great pleasure was to just be going all over the place and meeting these people and having conversations and understanding them. And frankly, when it comes to fan engagement, which is in the end why you got me on, not not talk about a huge breadth of subjects, you know, that's what a lot of fan engagement is about. is It's about curiosity about people. It's about listening. It's about dialogue being an active thing where I listen to you and I change my mind because of it. So we before we hit record, we were both talking about kind of like missing actually meeting people in person and engaging with them as a fan engagement engagement consultant like that is the bread and butter is meeting up with someone having that kind of sitting down having a coffee shaking their hand or a beer or whatever mm. with the pandemic we've, we've seen a lot of fan engagement from clubs move online do you think mm. that's going to play a bigger part moving forward do you think clubs are kind of stuck in that mind frame now that social media is the way that we were engaged with fans and like old-fashioned agms and maybe like christmas gatherings are, are going to be a thing that might slowly disappear no, not at all. No, no. I mean, there's a, there's a thirst for there's a thirst for human contact, isn't there? We're all heartily sick of looking at each other over a screen. I'm not the first person. I won't be the last to say that the pandemic has escalated tre- tendencies that there were and trends that were there already, and it's done that with technology particularly. It's meant that you know we're all open to being able to have a conversation, even if we're not at, actually able to be in the room, and that's good. And it it's good in a 
also in a budgetary sense because it means we don't need to spend money to get somewhere to have a conversation we recognize it's we've eased into it a bit and that's good there has been some good engagement a lot of it kind of disappeared when the football started again and i haven't looked at other sports but i'm but i'm pretty sure why well, rugby league's one i'm know a little bit through my relationship with um Warrington Wolves, the chief executive there who i've had on the pod actually as well and we chatted and he's a really interesting guy very impressive but i suspect it's the same in other sports technology's given us another arm another additional tool and we can now see the value in just as it's just as the same way we can see the value in a lot of companies can now see the value in working from home that couldn't even consider the idea before they now see yeah that could be really good for the for our workforce you know i think a lot of people can now see that tech is going to really help but it's not going to replace because in the end the business of football the business of sport is people in stadia watching people play a game you can't then manage all the relationships over a screen i'm kind of happy to hear that that's your opinion because the pandemic has shown like a digital divide within the public regarding laptops and internet and internet use and there was a scottish report last year that stated that 23 percent of disabled adults are not using the internet i'm personally always kind of worried that clubs are over reliant on social media to to push out their information and how much there is a kind of a fall off of phone calls letters to engage with supporters i think it's a good point um i think in terms of um, communication online I think there's a I think we over rely on the public social media spaces I think we're over reliant and I you know maybe I'm partly guilty of encouraging through the index because that has a, an expectation that clubs should have a supporter services channel through Twitter but you know it's a good way of communicating it's not the only way football is obviously the country's national sport and disability is the country's biggest minority group do you think club supporter engagement reflects that in the work that they do um i mean i i know that every club has a has a disability liaison office officer these days they, they'll, and, they'll have them doing several other different yeah, jobs but well, yeah. this is the same problem with slos very often or you will find with slos is is that the slo will be a staff member who's already got a million and one other things to do in in that sense a lot of this is about um isn't just about actively solve the problem and integrate people and and integrate them into the football club is you would say so so for example in the case of a support liaison officer and general supporter relations avoid appointing a member of staff because it's easier to do that and it means you've got control work with your fan organization to appoint an activist i mean christine green at grimsby she's very skilled in what she does because she's also she's also studied it she's the slo she's a fan if, if you're a football club looking to try to a understand and b improve the the experience of dis- disabled people at, at your club, then why are you not working with either a you? I'm sure you could find a fan. I mean, it's not perhaps as straightforward as that, but lots of clubs now have uh, disabled group fan groups. Disabled sports um, associations, DSA. Yeah, disabled sports yeah. associations. If and if you can't find that, then work with your supporters' trust, and most it will be supporters' trust or your independent group. To, to find that through research. I mean, clubs put out surveys all the time. You're putting out an annual or twice that biannual survey, put something in about disability, find out what proportion of your fan base is or, 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 or of your season ticket holder base has a disability, and then start to work out whether you could work with them to build up the role of the, DL, the DLO. Having someone in there, that lived experience thing, having someone in there that understands it, 
is going to be really useful to you. Or there might even be people, you know, God, there'd be people who are retired social workers who worked in that field, or there might, you know, there's all sorts of people. It's this talent in the fan base. And I may, and I do mean at any club, I'm not having this, well, that's fine for, for Morecambe, but for Man United, no, you can't do that. Yes, you can. You can do that. You can listen just as much as you do with any other club. We all have the same DNA clubs. The clubs are all very similar at their base. It's just the layers over the top. And a lot of it is about being curious and listening. And if you do that, then you'll be curious to find out who in your fan base might be useful to work with. And, you know, how can you improve that? Well, I think, look, let's be honest, I think half the time it is, it's more about, I, I, in my view, in my experience of having worked in the field of football and worked in the field of social care and social work. My view, my experience is that it's very often much more about the able-bodied, the people on the, the, the mass, the, you know, the mass in the middle, us flabby lot in the middle, listening to the people who are not flabby lot in the middle and us giving them the time of day. I'm not saying that people with a disability can't make a noise about it. You know, that's one of the ways that that, that profound change happens. It's the reason you had the Dis- Disability Discrimination Act introduced. It was partly because of, you know, activism by, by disabled groups. It was really important. But we have to be prepared to listen. And I think a lot of it is about us listening, not through some sense of guilt, but because it's just it's the human thing to do. So, yeah, if I had a disability and I was following my club and I didn't feel like they were listening, then I would be organising in the same way that any supporters trust might have done because they felt the club wasn't listening to the fan base as a whole. Always do that. And the fact that they've got a resource like you around to talk to and support them, that's really useful. As I said, I mean, it is all a bit hippie. You know, if we all just listen to each other and give each other a hug every so often, it'll all be well. That's not true. We have to. Some of us have to fight much harder to to be heard and to be recognised. In the end, one of the reasons we do get heard and recognised is because the people at the centre, the other people who we're talking to, are prepared to listen to us. So, I think a lot of us, in inverted commas, have to be prepared to be better at listening. Perfect, Kevin. Thank you so much for talking to me. Um, I wish you the best of luck. I wish AFC Wimbledon the best of luck in, in your relegation dogfight. Yeah, um, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, thank you so much for talking to me. It's okay, no problem. Thank you to Kevin for speaking to me. You can follow Kevin on social media and listen to his podcast via the links in the episode description of this podcast. Nottingham Forest, as regular listeners of this podcast will know, is my hometown club, the one I love and support. It also happens to be one of the few clubs that don't have a disabled supporters association, also known as DSA. However, it does happen to have a progressive thinking supporters trust. Before we get into this interview, full disclosure, I am a member of the supporters trust, but not in a senior capacity. So fresh from winning the FSA's Lockdown Heroes Award for their work on mental health, I spoke to board members Lindsay Knott and Paul Seven about their particular subject matter and the matter of disability inclusion at the city ground. We normally start these episodes talking about football but as Free Forest fans I'm sure we pretty much don't want to touch that subject matter this time but I mean how, how are you finding it this season transitional season as I see it how do you both see it? I'm showing my age now I've been going since the mid 1970s so I've had the ups the downs the backwards and forwards I think obviously as true Forest fans like true fans of any club you stay with it but it is quite hard work it is you know you're there but also 
almost in adversity, you always get closer as well to your other Forest fans and your friends who are Forest fans. Paul? What's quite sad is that, that watching it on a on a laptop now has almost become normal and that all of that excitement of going to games is kind of taken away, but it's become normal. I'm really looking forward to sort of going back, going with my family, all of that kind of thing. But um, yeah, for now, this is all that there is and you, you try to make, make the best of it and hopefully we can uh, get the points to stay up. It's, it's also, I think, for me, been disappointing seeing Leeds go up and do well. Just because they're the kind of thing where I, I see Leeds and I see Forest as two clubs. And as long as they were there, it's like, it's not too bad. Like, we've both been out of the Premier League for quite a long time. We're both quite big clubs. And then they go up and that hurt. And then seeing them do well, it hurts even more. And we're not having a great season. It's just like a poison dagger. Maybe the way of looking at it then, Liam, is to actually if they've done it in that way and they've stayed true to their football, haven't they? That we actually say, right, obviously not this season, hopefully next season, then we'll go up and do the same. I hope so. I I truly hope so. But I do think we have a curse around our clubs and we're paying for it for some reason. I don't know what's happened. We're we're stuck in the championship forever. (laughs) Um, Anyway, let's move on to uh, why we're here. First of all, I think it'd be interesting for people to understand a bit more about the trust. So if you just give a bit of background about the trust and how it was formed. It started with an open meeting in 2016. This was before um, I was involved. And um, the trust was registered uh, later that year. And then um, first members joined uh, a year later. It's a a not-for-profit organisation. It's a democratic organisation. We're also an independent organisation as well. We're not not part of the club in any any way. We're we're a separate organisation. Lindsay, can I ask what attracted you to the role? Why why did you want to give up your time to to try and uh, better the supporters and better the club? I think and it links in with, with both general themes but also the theme of today. Um, I've been going to see Forest since 1976, which is a blooming long time. Eight years ago, I was diagnosed with tinnitus um, and I have other hearing impairments which relate to other disability problems. And I was struggling to have some connection with the club. And so I wasn't a member of the trust at that stage, but contacted the trust um, and since then has been part of the trust working around disability issues, but other other issues. Um, and for me, and we'll talk about it more later, I'm sure, um, one of the important things is that I have an individual experience as a disabled fan. I'm also a female, which also puts me in a minority, but also part of a bigger fan base. And rather than just my concerns and my worries, it's about bringing people together. So whether it's disabled fans coming together to speak as one voice with many tones or many different fans with many different tones. So I, Paul and I actually were co-opted and then elected at the same time. So my reason for joining is twofold, really. One, to help promote the needs of people with disabilities, but also to be part of a broader movement. And as a community worker by profession, very much LinkedIn club is part of a community. Disabled people are part of a community. And that's what's attracted me to the trust because I, my two loves in my life are football and community. So for me, it's a great way of blending the two. Nottingham Forest are one of the few clubs in the championship who don't have a DSA. How important is it then to try and get the voices of disabled supporters for the trust? And how did the trust go about projecting that voice? Because 
as a supporters trust, you've got a lot of other issues as well as disability. So how do you go about making sure that disability is up there in in the minutes? Hey, what a DSA is. Liam, oh, sorry. Yeah, of course. Because a few of my friends and my nephew will be listening, and DSA won't mean anything to him. I think it's to do with driving. <laughs> yeah, not well, my nephew, but anybody might. Of course. So DSAs for the people listening are disabled supporters associations. I think for me, obviously, a, a disabled support association is one method of disabled fans with disabilities being represented, being run again as a community worker and very much about organisations being run for and by people with disabilities or LGBTQ. For me, initially joining the Supporters Trust Board, uh, well, the trust and then the board, is that at the stage in Nottingham, as, as you said, Forrest, we haven't got a disabled, um, disabled supporters association. So for me, the next best thing was at this stage to work with the trust. And we are pr- very, very proactively. And then not just because I have a disability, because we've got the full support of other members of the board to actually reach out to fans with disabilities. And um, we've made that a key part. So and this is much our approach. It's not just about an individual trust member contacting the chair about something and then the chair contacting the CEO of Nottingham Forest. It's about reaching out to fans. So we have actually done a disability workshop. We've done some research when we're bringing fans together, um, fans with disabilities and their carers. If that then leads to those fans saying we would like a Disabled Supporters Association as one of the things, then we would obviously support that work with that. So it's not exclusive. I don't see things as being exclusive. I think it's about working together. We have actually on our board, and this to me shows how open and accessible it is, but also how this proactive work we've done. Of our nine board members, three have disabilities, which is a third. And I think that has come from solely being out there saying we're doing some work around disability. We haven't, you know, that that kind. We've got, you know, ways we need to prove in others. It's not that we don't believe in them. It's just at this moment in time, this is the organisation and this is the way through which we're doing it. And if there were a disabled sports association to be set up at Forest, through Forest or independently, then I'd like to think it's everybody working together. And as long as we have that communication and we work together, that's important. I think the the group that we brought together that Lindsay mentioned was a, a, a real sort of step forward and, and, a, and a great example to other similar groups of what's, of what's possible. We invested quite, it was our biggest investment of that financial year to run a, a professionally facilitated focus group for people with all all types, of, well, not all types, but many types of, of disability and, and Lindsay can talk a bit more about that but I thought that was a, a you know something really quite innovative. We do an annual supporters club survey members trust survey anyway um, but we want to do something more proactive so um, we, like Paul said we worked with an outside consultant again to show that we were trying to get a broad range it wasn't just about three board members or two board members having their views and this is an example of maybe you know whether you're disabled um support association or a trust or any other organization it wasn't all plain sailing all the time but we did work closely with the club to do that they let us hold the workshop which took place in January 2020 just before lockdown and the pandemic so we're now just trying to start that up again and we wanted it to be as representative as possible so we had it's 12 people there 
um, on the day with the carers, ranging from people with and caring for people with disabilities, people with children with autism, people with a variety of mobility problems. The reason for that was looking at what forests do well, rooms for improvement, and also ways that we could then link in with forests and report back to them and take that forward. We reached out to, obviously, Liam and I have met with another member, board member with a disability, Kurt, um, at the beginning of last year, and also people like Autism East Midlands. So I think we have quite a connecting role, and I think the club value that, but we're not doing it instead of organisations uh, made up for and by people with disabilities. As we're recording this, I think tomorrow is a year since fans were even in the stadium. Something that you, you've spoken about, the trust has kind of been very proactive during this period. And I have to congratulate you because you've just recently, a few hours ago, found out that you've won the FSA Awards for um, Lockdown Heroes, I think is Fink's the award. And, and you, you've got that because of the work that you've done with mental health during lockdown in in may i think it was level playing field put out a survey the statistics that we got back was that 62 percent of the the supporters who took part said that not attending live football this season would impact their well-being so in the work that you've done with mental health do you think that stat kind of rings true and just kind of explain what it is that the trust have actually been doing as part of my my blogging as a bit of a backstory, I um, had the opportunity to, to sort of look into this in a little bit of detail. I managed to interview some some expert at Nottingham University in, in mental health and sport. I sort of asked them the question: you know, Is going to football good for your mental health or not? Because sometimes it, it can it's hard, as we know, uh, when your team's not doing well. And, and their answer was that unequivocally football is very very positive for mental health that can be uh, about giving people identity belonging just spending time with friends and family and be a a distraction from other difficult things in in your life so when football was taken away and um, we couldn't go anymore I immediately thought this is going to seriously affect people's uh, mental health particularly those who who rely on football as an outlet. Um, and I, I would put myself in, in that category. And I think certainly a lot of people with disabilities really see football as key to what they do. We had to decide, you know, what are our, are our priorities going to be going forward? And and we've done a various things, including um, helping promote food bank appeals and things like that. But one thing we really concentrated on was, was mental health and made that a real priority. And we worked with a, a mental health trainer at the Nottingham Forest Community Trust, Claire Henson, uh, did some interviews with her, asked questions about what can we do to get through this period? How, how can we look forward to a future where we are back doing, going to the matches and doing the things that we love? And and she's an absolutely amazing person with some great insights. Um, she's a Forest fan herself. And we did various interviews, interviews with people who have been helped by the club's Tricky to Talk programme. And we actually ran a course for members as well on mental health awareness, which was absolutely fantastic to bring supporters together to speak openly about mental health and can i also add the, the link that obviously you mentioned Liam, um, with somebody with a disability and, and mental health one of my lowest times with my tinnitus i've had to give up quite a few things is when i had to give up my season ticket forest have allowed me to go in the disabled section which has glass but the only time well one of the only times or the time i got lowest 
is when I had to give it my season ticket because of the impact of going to football and how it gave me a boost. So in a way, that, that was my disability and the mental health impact. The flip side of that, disability, we talked about Disabled Supporters Association. It's good that we highlight somebody's disability. Um, but the flip side of that is when I go to Forest, because I have started going again, and um, when I go to Forest, yes, I have a disability, but first and foremost, I'm a Forest fan. And it is an incredible leveller. Football is a leveller as well as something that can give you, you know, and that community. And I think that's why a lot of fans, both myself, but a lot of people that came to the workshop, if you look at some of the barriers that we we face and fans' disabilities face, you think, why on earth do they just not give up? Why do they keep going and keep going? And you could say, oh, that's a matter of rights and justice. It's because we love football and we love what it gives us. And I think that's a boost that gives people with disabilities already having challenges. It gives you that boost, but it is a leveller. Football is a leveller. So, yes, we've got a disability, but we're a Forest fan. When I'm at Forest, I'm a Forest fan before anything else. In your opinion, what roles can non-disabled supporter groups play in raising awareness on access and inclusion, also tackling bigger issues like disability abuse, online abuse and things like that? I mean, what role can the trust play in in highlighting that? You may be aware as a Forest fan, um, a couple of years ago, a fan um, called Ben, who um, who was a double amputee we joined him for like an interview and a a video we we heard all about his story how his operations had affected him how it completely changed his life and turned it upside down we put that video out it did really well and then he he had an ambition to walk to his his seat for the start of the season as something sort of drive him on and a very inspiring story the video came out and he he walked across the pitch to his seat with his partner and it was really great to play just a small role in that and highlight what he's had to go through in order to walk to his seat in that way and it's only a tiny contribution to the whole thing and like you said there's 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 really really big issues Um, but what we can do is say exactly what Lindsay was saying that forest fans there's all sorts of people that make up that community we've Sort of shine that light on all different types of, of people, including people with disabilities. And I think I think that's something that we've been able to do quite well. And, and we'll certainly continue to do that because it, it just makes us much richer as a fan base. We'll wrap it up there. But uh, Paul, Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. And I know uh, we at Level Playing Field look forward to working with you as you continue certainly. to move forward. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, thanks Liam. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Lindsay and Paul and the Nottingham Forest Supporters Trust for taking the time to speak to me. If you would like to know more about the work that the Trust are doing, you can find a link in the episode description of this podcast. That's it for this month's episode. Next month, we will be speaking to ex-Paralympian and now politician Tani Gray-Thompson, alongside the country's first hate crime officer, PC Stuart Ward, as we discuss disability abuse. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and go rate and review. It really does help people find the podcast. Even better, share the podcast with your friends and family. Until next time, be well. Be well.